Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is good. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. And across to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Hear Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take in to take possession of their land, but on the account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers 
to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. And our third reading for today is from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22, which starts on page 158. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord, your God, and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God, who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you know, after about five, this is my fifth year, actually, five years of preaching, uh, I've been amazed at how timely some sermons are. I mean, we, a year before, uh, planned the series, planned the books, divided up, and uh, it's amazing how God's timing, the right passage for the right Sunday. I mean, two weeks ago was a good example. We started the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, it was looking at the theme of not forgetting, but remembering, and it was Anzac Day. Last Sunday, we looked at how we shared the love of God to kids, and we had kids back in church. And then there's some days that I left scratching my head. And today is one of those days where we're looking at the topic of holy war and it's Mother's Day. This is not a Mother's Day sermon, right? Just putting it out there, don't send me an email. That wasn't very motherly. I know, right? Okay. <laughs> It just so happens that on this day, we're at Deuteronomy 7 to 10. Let's see what God might do. Yeah? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we ask knowing that your word is good and uh, you call your people, us, to hear what you have to say. And so we ask, Lord, 
knowing that this is not an easy passage, but we know that you're with us, speaking to us through your word, and give us ears to hear. Amen. I want to begin by asking you a question, and a question that I actually want you to think about and have an answer to in your own mind. What is God like? Actually, think about it. Have a couple of words in your head. For you, what is God like? God is... It's interesting. The answer that you have in your mind tells you more about you than about God. A.W. Tozer says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And as I've been pondering that for the last year or so, I realize it's true, true in my life, true in your life, that when we describe God, talk about God, it may be true about God, but it's amazing how much it mirror, it reflects our personality, preferences, passions and politics. And with that being said, it means it's rare for us to describe God the way that he normally describes himself. And that is holy. So what I want to do is explore what does it mean that God is holy, this common yet misunderstood aspect of God. What does it mean that God is holy? What does it mean to be holy? And then thirdly, how you can be holy. That's where we're going, right? So let's start with the fact that God is holy. Now, to be honest, this word holy is some, a word that is not very common. Often people think it's the word holy. That's a plant, flower, Christmas time. Very different, right? Holy has two kind of meanings to it. The first is this. It means separate, distinct, unique. That God is distinct from what? Everything else. That there is a massive divide between the creator and the creation and they should never be blurred. That God is unlike every other thing. Now, by default, you and I, because we're created, we ain't holy. A city, a building, a place, it's not holy. Only God, who is holy, has the right to call something else holy, and he does. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, it says, God says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God that they were supposed to be a people distinct, separate from those around. See, God has the right to call something holy, and only God does. If I go around now and say, I'm going to knight a few people. So, O.T., you're going to be a knight. Uh, Katie, you're going to be a knight. Bernardo, you're going to be a knight. I can't make you a knight. Only the Queen of England has the authority to make someone a knight. And only God has the authority, because he is holy, to declare something is holy. And he declares his people holy. But there's another aspect to this word that we need to understand. Holiness is also purity. That God has no, not a skerrick of evil or badness or sin in him. He is complete goodness, total perfection in every way. Remember, how many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to get kicked out of the presence of God in Eden? One. Just one, and he couldn't tolerate it. Now we think, oh my goodness, one. I mean, the bar is very high, right? And that's because we're so used to things being imperfect. We're not used to this kind of purity. 
the closest thing we get to understanding this purity, this holiness, is when it comes to our food. Let's say, for example, you go out for brunch or lunch after this, and you sit down at a cafe, and they bring you, a, you order a nice salad with a quinoa and kale and all that kind of stuff. And as you're eating it, you notice a cockroach. That's just a small cockroach. But what do you do? Well, it's only 3% of the meal. I mean, that's okay. 97% is fine. Let's just chow in. No, what do you do? You call the waiter. You're outraged. You're angry. Take this back. I'm not having any of it, right? You are holy when it comes to the food that you eat. Your standards are perfection. God is the same, not so much with food, but with morality, with the way we live. His standard is perfection. He does not compromise. He cannot compromise. And so that's why, I mean, look, to be honest, the reality is that we know in ourselves we've, we've sinned more than once, right? We're full of it. And that's why all throughout the Old Testament, God's people couldn't just waltz up to God and say, hey, here I am. That's why people died when they touched the Holy Covenant or the, the, the Ark or the, or the Temple, when they just waltzed on in, because they were full of sin and God cannot stand one. And we might think that's an overreaction, right? But if you replace God for lava, molten lava, and you think, yeah, I can just waltz on and just touch it, you clearly don't know what you're dealing with, do you? And when it comes to God is holy, we cannot just walk in thinking, yep, I'm going to be fine. God is holy and we are not. So that's the first thing. God is holy. Let's move on to our second thing. What does holiness mean and come to Deuteronomy 7, particularly holy war, right? So God is holy. His people are holy. They're about to enter into this promised land, a very unholy place, but God wants it to be holy. And we get to holy war. Now, when I was in Bible college, I picked an essay on this topic, uh, on how does, in Deuteronomy 7, the total annihilation of the Canaanites, how does that mesh and blend with God's promise to Abraham saying, you'll bless and bless the nations? How is this a blessing? Now, unfortunately, I misspelled the word annihilation throughout the essay to inhalation. So the t- anyway, it became a breathing exercise kind of essay, but... But to be honest, I chose this essay because for me, this passage, probably more than any other passage, has prompted more doubts and questions in my faith. It's a very big and confronting passage. So let's let's sort of work through it bit by bit, right? Let's turn to chapter 7, page 155 in your Black Bibles. It starts chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, and then he names them, Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Pezites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is who is driving this? Who is doing it? It is the Lord God. Later in this chapter, it says the Lord will deliver them over to you. He will hand their kings to you. And if you know the story, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. Jericho, for example, they're walking around it with torches and uh, what, trumpets. That's their weapons. And they walk around the city of Jericho. And on the seventh day, after seven times, it comes crushing down. That is not a strategy that works unless God is tearing down those walls, right? So God is the one doing it. 
But God is not only giving them this promised land, but we've got to understand he is also enacting judgment upon these seven nations. Because notice in chapter 9, it was read to us, it says it's not because of your righteousness or integrity, but on the account of the wickedness of these nations. Now, it's easy to think, obviously, that God's judgment here is too harsh. I mean, the total annihilation, but it could be that we don't understand God's holiness, but also it's probably we don't understand the wickedness of these people. In Deuteronomy 18, it gives us a taste of what these Canaanites, what they were doing. Because there it says, in Deuteronomy 18, they would take two-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, children, and they would slaughter them on a sacrifice. They would throw them into the fire in worship to the God that they had made up. And that behaviour was normal. Now, if that's normal behaviour, that tells you how wicked and perverse these people were. These were not innocent people twiddling their thumbs, but engaged in generation after generation of horrible things. I mean, every now and then, Four Corners will do an expose of something that's happening closed doors, and you watch it, and it makes your heart just ache in, in, in horror. And the kind of wickedness that was happening in these nations was horrendous. So unlike the gods that these guys worship was so unlike the God of the Bible, Yahweh, who, as it says in Deuteronomy 10, defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner, who stand up for the vulnerable. But God's judgment on these people, it's not a rash, spur-of-the-moat decision. Because back in Genesis 15, where God promised Abraham this land, he didn't say at that point, all right, go in. No, no, he says there, don't go in because their sin is not yet complete. That for five, six, seven hundred years, God had been merciful to these seven nations. Merciful in wanting them to repent, wanting them to change. But enough was enough. Because it says, verse 2, When the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, you have defeated them. Then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. See, for hundreds of years, God was slow in anger, showing mercy, but the day of judgment has arrived. And he's saying, this day is not a day for mercy, but of judgment and justice. And friends, can I say, there is a day coming when Jesus returns where there will be no more mercy. God is showing you mercy in droves. Even though you might not believe in him, he is showing you mercy after mercy, but a day is coming when he returns, and that day the mercy ends. And you want to make sure you're standing on the right side of eternity when that day comes, and it could be tomorrow. Now, my experience, when talking with Christians and and even myself with this chapter, when it comes to God's judgment, there's a sense where, okay, God is just, he must enact judgment cannot over, you know, turn a blind eye to sin. And there's a sense where, you know, I mean, this happened a couple of chapters, books earlier, Noah's Ark. But there's an uneasiness about this type of judgment because it seems like the sword of justice is in place in human hands. And I don't know about you, but there's an uncomfortableness about that, sort of fear of abuse or misuse. And that has happened, a.k.a. the Crusades, right? Now, 
at one level, we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible is twisted out of context. Satan, his number one tool is the Bible, right? He twists scripture all the time and still does. So you shouldn't be surprised about it. But a couple of things about that idea. You notice that the seven nations are identified because God is saying this is the parameter in which judgment is to occur and nothing outside of that. These people, not other people. And this holy war was a never-to-be-repeated once-and-once-only event. It is not an ongoing thing because in Deuteronomy 20, it gives you a whole bunch of commands there for other types of wars. And there's offerings of peace. There's different interactions. It's completely different. This one is a one-time, never-to-be-repeated moment. They couldn't wake up one day and say, hey, we like that land over there. Let's go. No, no, no. One time, one only. One final objection, which you may have always often said, is that this holy war was racially driven, sort of some sort of genocide. But we know that's not the case because what is the focus here? It's not on race, it's on spiritual issues. I mean, if it was about race, I mean, Rahab the prostitute was in Jericho, a Canaanite, and there she turns to God and follows and becomes part of God's people. And there in Jesus' genealogy, there Rahab is mentioned. If it was about race, that wouldn't have happened. But the battle here is spiritual. Will God's people compromise? Will they obey God? Will they be ensnared by the sins of the Canaanites? And you notice there the focus, what is it on? Chapter, verse 3. One is on marriage, one is on idolatry. It says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will return your children away from following me to serve other gods. See, God's was saying to his people that my intention is for you to marry someone who follows the same God as me. And here's the focus. Why? Is because your children will be split. The focus will be split about who to follow. But it moves on, removing idolatry. Verse 5, this is what you do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut their Asherah poles, and burn their idols into the fire. Why such drastic action? I mean, this is not a renovation. This is a destruction, demolition. Because God is not naive to the conditions of our heart. These poles, these idols would have been elaborately decked out in gold and silver and jewels. And though they might have gone in there and thinking, you know what, I know that's bad, it's amazing how easy our hearts turn and justify something that we know is bad, but we say five minutes later, no, that's actually good. And we compromise bit by bit. But you know what's interesting? God's warning to his people, the biggest danger is not so much out there, but it's in here. Because he says a number of times, do not be stiff-necked. The idea of stubborn, of being proud, of self-reliant. Because you can imagine if you're told you're holy, your treasured possession, to go and enact judgment on God's behalf. That can get to your head, can't it? It's amazing how many times... And in different ways, God says to his people, do not be stiff-necked, do not be arrogant. Why? Look at verse 7. It's such a humbling verse. 
The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you're numerous, because you're the fewest. Or chapter 9, verse 4. After the Lord has driven you out, uh, driven them out, do not say to yourself, you know what? The Lord has brought me here to take possession of the land because of my righteousness. I'm a pretty good bloke. God goes another step further. He, say, he gives a warning to his people saying, if you are unfaithful like the Canaanites are, then the same judgment that falls on them will fall on you. And if you know the story, that is true. God does not want his people for a second thinking that they deserve the blessing. A number of years ago, when I was 18, in fact, I had the honour and privilege of meeting the Queen of England. And uh, it was the Commonwealth Games that I presented the Commonwealth mace and that kind of thing in the ceremony. And then at Kirribilli House down the road, there was an opportunity uh, where there was a whole bunch of people in this big tent and the Queen was there. And everyone had a name tag. It had your name and your title or your position underneath. And so uh, there was next to me Gough Whitlam, former Prime Minister of Australia, and to the Chief of Police, so-and-so, and Lord Mayor, and all, the, all these titles. And then there was my name tag, James Galea, nothing. It was just blank, right? It was just... And so in the course of this day, the Queen, John Howard, who's the Prime Minister of Time, was introducing the Queen and to various people and was looking at the name tags. Like, oh, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. And I clearly remember he looked at my name tag. I was like, I have no idea who that is. And just steered Her Majesty away. But the Queen left, no joke, the Queen left her, his side and walked up to me and said, hello. And we had a conversation. There was nothing about me that drew the queen to me. Blank. God of the universe approaches you. And there is nothing about you. No title, no prestige, nothing. But God approaches you and says, you are my treasured possession. You are holy. My affection is for you. And it's not because of anything you've done, but because I love you. Which is such a liberating thing, friends, because if it was something we had done, we would be always anxious about whether his love was certain or not when that thing went. That as he tells his people in the Old Testament, he tells his people in the New Testament, you know why I love you? Because I love you. But being treasured possession, being holy. That honour always comes with responsibility. In 1 Peter chapter 4, I think it's uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, it's on the screen. It says this, and it's amazing how much this echoes Deuteronomy. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you've had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you who is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. There is a big difference between, there's a similarity, God has called us holy, that we living on this side of Jesus, we are holy and we are even called saints. But there's a difference between what God asked his people to do in the Old Testament and what he asked his people in the New Testament to do. For them, the battle was physical. For us, the battle is spiritual. But the thing that remains is the battle. 
God never puts his redeemed people in a spiritually sanitized environment. He puts them in the real world, there to do battle with evil, to battle with idols. That was the case then, it's the case now. I mean, it's different now. I mean, Paul in Athens, he goes into a place where there's all sorts of idols. He doesn't smash them, but he's distressed by them. And you and I live in a culture where there are hundreds of idols. I mean, our culture loves houses and the property market is a massive religion. We live in a culture that idolises alcohol and if you're not drinking it or drunk by it, you're subhuman. We live in a culture where it has the facade of a great work-life balance, but you need to work and you need to work and you never switch off. Idols all around us. And the question is, as a treasured possession, as a, whole, as a holy people, will you be apathetic? Will you seek to smash the idols in your own life? Obey God in the way you engage in relationships. Fight to be different. Loosen your neck and know that you're loved not because of anything you've done. You know, interesting, holiness is not just the absence of evil, but the promotion of good. It's like a garden. You can remove all the weeds, but unless you plant plants, it's not a garden. And God calls his people in Deuteronomy 10 and indeed now. There in Deuteronomy 10, he says, Love those who are foreigners, for you were a foreigner. In this year of loving our neighbour, friends, when you love your neighbour, you're not just being neighbourly, but you're being holy, the people God has called you to be. But you know what? And I can see it on your faces, even though it's half of it. Some of you are thinking, how can I be holy? If you know what I've done, if you know what I'm doing, how can I, God actually call me holy authentically? You feel that? This is the final point. How is it can we can be holy? That God can declare us holy, but that actually should be a true statement, a true fact. What I think is very interesting in Deuteronomy 9, it wasn't read out for us, but Deuteronomy 9, verse 7, if you have a look there, you'll see those three words, the golden calf. As he's just commanded them to go engage in holy war, he brings up something from the past, all oh, that they would love to forget. The moment where God had rescued his people, they'd walked through the Red Sea, and there Moses goes to the top of the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, and he's taken a bit of a long time. So they turn to one another and take off their earrings, their necklaces, and they melt it all down and form a little golden calf. And they have a loose party. And they worship this golden calf. And they say things like, Praise be to this golden calf who has rescued us from Egypt. And there in Deuteronomy 9, God is angry, rightfully angry, of them calling holy something that is not holy. And so what happens? It says how Moses, the leader of his people, stands in between the holy God and an unholy people, the middleman, the mediator. And Moses there prays to God 
saying, listen to me, do not listen to the sin of my people. And God listens to him and doesn't pour his anger onto his people. And so Moses takes that golden calf and he melts it down and removes it from his people. So God can call his people holy. He doesn't turn a blind eye to their sin. Friends, you and I need a greater Moses, a Moses who will stand on our behalf. And the good news is on another mountain, hundreds of years later, there Jesus Christ stood on our behalf, the middleman, the true middleman, fully God, fully human, Jesus Christ. And there, even though we have done unholy things, Jesus stood praying to God, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And God the Father listened to his son, and he didn't listen to our sin. And there Jesus took the wrath of God like a lightning conductor onto himself so that it wouldn't come on us. And he took more than just the golden calf away. He took every single one of your sins away so that he can call you holy, and that is what you are. God has gone to extraordinary lengths to say you are holy. God the Father declares it. Jesus achieves it. The Holy Spirit affirms it. I know you don't think you are holy, but if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you. How holy do you have to be for God's presence to dwell within you? You are holy. Brothers and sisters, live out that reality. Be who God declares you to be in your workplace, in your home, online, face-to-face, in every aspect of your life. Be holy. I want to end by talking about my mum. I know I didn't say this is a Mother's Day sermon, but I want to talk about my mum in closing. There's a picture of her on the screen, I think. Yep, there she is with her grandson. My mum taught me what holiness means in all sorts of ways. But there was one moment which I'm particularly thankful for. I came home from school and I said, told her about how there was a, a fight. Uh, some several kids were being bullying, a couple of punches to another kid. And mum got really angry. And I said, no, no, mum, don't, don't worry. I didn't do anything. She said, no, that's the point. You didn't do anything. As a Christian, you need to do something. And she taught me in that moment what holiness is. Right anger at sin. No excuses. But holiness is doing good in every situation. She taught me to be holy because God is holy.